Waldy and Bendy. Hello, and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they couldn't stop. I'm Valdemar Janusztrak, art critic of the Sunday Times, though some people call me Waldy. They really do. And I'm happy to answer to that name. I'm joined, as always, by the TV giant, Bendor Bendy Grosvenor, who used to be an art dealer, and then an art historian, and now he's a TV heartthrob on the BBC. That's quite a career you've had there, Bendy. Bravo. Thank you, Weldy. But how the mighty have fallen, because I'm now, during the lockdown, stuck in my attic in my homemade sound booth, surrounded by old mattresses, talking to you. Do you know, I have an advantage over all the listeners in that I can see your homemade sound booth, this tower of mattresses. It's very impressive. <laughs> now, I wonder if that is also what all the celebs that we're going to be talking about in a moment are also using, because there's been this thing during the great lockdown of celebrities picking up brushes and starting to paint. That's what Sylvester Stallone is doing, Sharon Stone, Reese Witherspoon. They're all at it, apparently, and all that is coming up. But first, Bendy, we've been talking about some pretty specific things on this podcast. Specific artists, Leonardo, Caravaggio, Rubens. And personally, I think that's all a bit too easy for a man of your enormous mental capabilities. So this week, I thought we'd tackle something harder, something elusive, something that's difficult to tie down. I think it's an art movement. But I'm not certain. It's very vague. And I'm thinking, of course, of mannerism. Bendy, what is mannerism? Goodness. Uh, well, how long have we got? Not very long. So in very simple terms, mannerism is, is the period in, in Western art, uh, painting and architecture, which, which comes from the tail end of the, the early Renaissance. So from about late 1520s, say, onwards to about 1600, when it peters out, it's the period really when artists didn't quite reject the, the lessons of the Renaissance, but they, they went at it with knobs on. So, for example, uh, Raphael, if you think of Raphael, he's the, the, the master of pure perspective and beauty and harmony in pictures. And, and that was described at the time as being perfection in art. Well, if you're a young artist facing that in about, say, 1530 after Raphael's died, where do you go? It's a bit of a challenge to you. So they decided to break some of the rules, to, to bend them, literally to bend them, in fact, because the art historian and the artist from whom we get the phrase mannerism, Giorgio Vasari, talks about something called the figura serpentinata. So if you imagine a mannerist painting by someone like the artist Parmigianino, the figures are often very serpentine. They're, they're willowy, bendy people with limp wrists and elongated necks, Sometimes it works. Very often, I find, it doesn't. I don't know about you. Do you know what? I love mannerism. I absolutely adore it. Um, even when it doesn't work, I find it exciting. Now, um, I, did, I did a film once on, on, um, on the Renaissance where I described the Renaissance as the equivalent of a beautifully shaped pearl, sort of round and perfect. And then to show what the Baroque age was, I got one of those warpy sort of pearls you get when things haven't quite worked out and they're all blobby and, and hang over the corners. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the Baroque. Well, mannerism was the thing in between, wasn't it? It was mm -hmm. the sort of journey from the perfectly round pearl to the misformed blobby one. It was when art started to 
give up on this notion that things should be graceful and perfect and began to explore other territories. So all sorts of great things happened in mannerism. I mean, in terms of colors, people started to use these very strange mannerist colors, all kind of opal fruit colors, bright greens and yellows and purples. And if you look at some of the mannerist paintings by the real heroes of mannerism, like Pontormo, who's my great hero, Florentine painter, Jacopo Pontormo, at work in Florence in the 1520s, you know, the colors are extraordinary. They're not real anymore. They're, they are eye-popping. And yes, the figures start drooping and pulling out and changing shape. So El Greco, for example, who was at the other end of mannerism, if you like, towards the end of the 16th century, he pulls all these figures out and stretches them as if they're made out of chewing gum. And Parmigianino did the same. So it's this kind of exciting revolt, I think, against the rules the uptightness, the grace, if you like, of the Renaissance. And that meant that it, it, it became a very unpredictable art movement. And unpredictable is good. You really don't know where you're going next. It's a bit like this podcast, really. You don't know where you're going next with mannerism. Yeah, well, would you agree with me that it is difficult to pull off and, and quite often it doesn't work? I mean, a poor old Giorgio Vasari, the man who in fact coins the term uh, mannerist, um, frankly he was no good at it was it because if you look at his paintings there's this terrible jumble of figures and you're not really sure where the eye's supposed to go uh, and that is what happens when you 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 say the rules don't apply anymore i mean even someone like bronzino sort of quite often gets it wrong i'm thinking particularly of his his nolle me tangere in the louvre where you know suddenly christ comes waltzing in from stage left looking a bit like Kenneth Williams high on cocaine and not at all like a, a Christ a, you know in the Bible or indeed anything spiritual and it seems to me often that if an artist manifestly doesn't seem to uh, believe in the, the spirituality of a figure like Christ well then their painting doesn't work at all. But hang on, Bendy, what rules are we talking about? I mean, are these the Bendor Grosvenor rules of how art must be? <laughs> surely there are bigger rules out there, which is that you paint what you feel at the moment needs saying. It's exciting. Now, I don't doubt for one second that the, the women in, in a Parmigianino picture, the great Madonna in Florence called the Madonna with the long neck. Um, and, and it's a woman who, who has some of the proportions of a swan. You know, she's got this yes. incredibly long neck and it's very weird. But art isn't about mimicking the real world. It's about bringing these emotional moods and states to it. And sometimes the whole point of mannerism was to show, I mean, you know, Italy in the 16th century was a country in turmoil. You know, there were wars going on, there was death, there was plagues. There was all sorts of dark stuff happening. There's absolutely no point pretending that it was all graceful and nice. And some of those unsettling atmospheres seeped into the art of the times. I'll tell you what I really like as well. I don't know, have you ever been to any mannerist gardens? Um, I th uh, no, I don't think I have. Well, there are these mannerist gardens in Italy. North of Rome, in Lazio, there are a couple of them. There's a famous one called Bomozzo, which right. was um, built in the 1560s. And you go in there and you wander about and suddenly you see these what you think are caves, but actually they're man-made structures, sort of wild follies with, with monsters staring out at you. And then you, you come across other buildings that are not straight, they're sort of bent at funny angles. 
Um, and then you come across these gaping devil's mouths and you go in and it's a cave, you know, this completely outrageous fantasy of what a garden could be, so different from your classical Renaissance garden. And wandering through them, it is a little bit like a kind of horror story Disneyland in places, but mm -hmm. it isn't a really exciting experience. And, and, and actually it all got transported here to, to England because a lot of our early um, gardens of the 17th century, even Inigo Jones gardens, you know, they had grottos, they had caves, they had this element of fantasy introduced into them. And all that stems from this disregard, if you like, of the rules of the Renaissance. And I see it really as a kind of wonderful freedom. I mean, the thing about Renaissance art is that by and large, it is of a piece, isn't it? Of course, there are enormous differences in, in sort of style and technique and, uh, um, and approach, but they're not as wild as the differences of, of mannerism. And in mannerism, if you take someone like you know, Archimboldo, do you know, he's the, the, the artist, Italian artist, went to work uh, in the, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, worked for Rudolf II, um, and painted all those faces that are made up of other things. So there's like faces made out of oranges or books. Or, or bits of vegetables or meat or fish and they're extraordinary things right but that's happening at, at the same time as someone like Tintoretto you know is painting that wonderful great big crucifixion you liked the other day in the Scuola San Rocco so there's this wonderful range to the art now um, the gardens are different the architecture's different everybody's expressing themselves more interestingly and I just find that it keeps you on your toes you know as an art critic uh, mannerism keeps you on your toes and and the fact that it's so hard to define is one of the things I like most about it how about that well yes quite right and I don't think we disagree really I think all I'm saying is that I find it quite variable um, I mean I suppose I have to confess that I'm a little bit OCD and I, I do like a, the odd rule I like the odd bit of symmetry in my pictures um, but it's true that you know for all the loveliness of a Raphael and, and that kind of Renaissance period of art beautiful and graceful but, but there is a lot of standing about people are standing still and that's that's partly unsurprising because they're often uh, based on on classical sculptures and so it is marvelous that mannerism comes along and injects a, a little bit of much needed dynamism and movement into painting but sometimes i just think it all goes horribly wrong and frankly i breathe a sigh of relief when baroque comes along <laughs> I'll tell you one thing, mannerism was more influential on the art of today than, um, than the Renaissance was. You know, if you look at things that are, that are happening in art today, then waywardness and all the stretching and all the difference and all the variety and all those things are far more current. You don't see anybody at, around at the moment who's trying to paint like Raphael or, or trying to work like Leonardo da Vinci, but you do see people who are going crazy in the manner of Archimboldo. Um, or who are stretching people out and painting wacky figures. We're going to be coming to a few of them soon, aren't we? And when we start looking at the celebrities that are at work at the moment um, in art. So um, from that point of view, it's very influential. Yes, Benny. Well, can I quickly mention my favourite mannerist painting, which I think some people might like to see. We'll put a, a link to it in the podcast show notes, but it's a little painting by Parmigianino in the Royal Collection called Palace Athena. I don't know if you know it. It's just a, a head. Uh, but if you look very closely, you can see a number of what we call in art history pentiments, which is where Parmigianino has changed his mind. And you can literally see mannerism in action because he's, he's made the ear go up by about half an inch and the eyes also go up and out by about an inch. And you can see how an artist has begun by painting a standard head of a model and just decided, 
oh, solid, this doesn't really look exciting enough. I'm going to stretch it out. It's a fascinating depiction, as I say, of mannerism in action. Bendy, I think we've successfully proved why mannerism is so difficult to talk about, almost impossible to define. So um, let's move on to something a bit easier. Let's go back to our closed rooms and see what everybody's up to in the period of isolation. Isolation. So, Bendy, we've left mannerism with our tails between our legs because we couldn't quite handle it. But this is something that I think you can handle. Um, it's something that I know caught your eye when you were looking through your Instagram feed the other day. Um, and it's this wonderful new tendency by celebrities to start painting during the great lockdown. I understand you've been staring at them with great pleasure and really enjoying what they're doing, haven't you? <laughs> is that the right way to describe it? I'm not sure. But it was a nice diversion. I mean, I often think that people like you and I, Wilde, we're very lucky. We, we, we look at so many great and beautiful artworks all the time. And it's easy to get punch drunk about it, isn't it? So I thought it might be useful to, uh, to divert myself to some of the really bad stuff in order to keep my artistic appreciation skills in order. Uh, and where better to start with some celebrities who don't really know much about painting. There's some great names who have, have taken to, to painting in the lockdown and, and they're trying their best. Uh, Sharon Stone did her first painting, it was pretty good actually. Uh, Reese Witherspoon and, and Demi Moore have also had a go and it's all up there on Instagram. We'll put the links in our show notes. Um, I was most struck though, if that's the right word, um, by Pierce Brosnan's efforts. He was a, a former James Bond, of course. Um, one painting in particular, I don't think it's got a title, but it's quite a large painting. And it shows a, a topless, a, a indeed rather pendulous woman. I think she's emerging from the sea because there seem to be a few fish floating about. And she's being admired by two figures in profile. Um, between them, for some reason, I'm not quite sure why, it looks like there's a, a pair of hairy testicles painted in green. And it's the sort of painting you might imagine a, a James Bond to paint. Um, it's quite voyeuristic. Um, it's very colourful uh, and all the figures are sort of rather crudely drawn in, in black outline. There's a certain competency to it I suppose. It's a bit like the love child of, of Matisse and, and Botticelli. Um, and <laughs> I don't know what you thought about it. I mean it reminded me sort of of the art they sell on, on cruise ships. I don't know. Did you have a look at that one? If I saw this on a cruise ship, I'd change boats quickly. What a ghastly thing it is. Yeah, it's more, I thought it was more Mamma Mia than James Bond. It, it had that sort of air of frolicking in the Greek waters, didn't it? With this psychedelic mermaid. Um, yes, what can I say? So yeah, whatever I say here, I'm going to sound incredibly snooty. I mean, you can't spend your life as I do going around great art galleries and great museums. Uh, and then yes. turn to Piers Brosnan's pendulous testicles um, <laughs> but, and enjoy them with anything other than a big no. smirk on well, your that, face. That's um, what I thought. But before you're, before, can I head you off at the snooty pass? Because <laughs> I have to, I, I, at this point, I have to go, Bendy, check your snooty privilege. Um, because I, I looked uh, grimly fascinated by this painting and, and Pierce's efforts. I looked up more about his artistic, um, you know, background. And it, it turns out that he did actually start life as a painter. And then he took up acting uh, and he forgot about the art. Um, but then his wife died in 1991. His first wife died in 1991 of ovarian cancer, which uh, a few years later tragically took the life of his daughter. And he took to painting in his grief. And he found that what came out was these 
sort of rather extraordinary, colourful depictions, mainly mainly figurative. And so when you're seeing Piers Brosnan's paintings, and, and he's done lots of them, they are actually, it, it's Piers Brosnan in therapy and in the, in the psychiatrist's chair, if you like, is, is colour, is painting. And so I think that that makes you, you have to then reassess what you're looking at because they may not be beautiful paintings, but, but as an expression of, of uh, his personal loss and recovery, they do have a certain beauty to them. And I've always been a Pierce Brosnan fan, and now I'm even more of a fan because I think it, it takes a lot of courage uh, to, to put that kind of, uh, you know, that reflection of your, your inner self out there to be judged by uh, the snooty likes of you and I. So, so I say good on Pierce. Oh dear, you see, you've hit me below the belt there. You start throwing in ovarian cancer and, and, and lost partners. And what can I possibly say? Um, I mean, it, uh, yeah, I, I don't read it that way at all. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if this picture has anything to do with that rather dark and admittedly very sad past that you talk about. Let, let's move on from Piers Brosnan, because I don't know anything about the man apart from what I saw in Mamma Mia. Um, but I do know a little bit more about Sylvester Stallone, because I've seen all the movies. And the, the pictures that you sent me that Syl Sylvester Stallone has been painting, I mean, they are surely unarguably awful. <laughs> I mean, they are these giant sort of grimacing faces, teeth snarling, exactly what you'd expect a sort of Sylvester Stallone character to paint. Half Jean-Michel Basquiat, sort of graffiti art, gigantic in size, and just all about this crude, punchy, sort of smack the paint down sort of stuff. Um, and utterly predictable, no? Uh, awful. And and I feel very comfortable uh, saying that Sylvester Sloan is an absolutely shockingly bad painter because he invites us to buy this stuff. Do you know you can go on, online and actually buy original Sylvester Stallone paintings. So he's he's putting himself out there as a professional artist. And I think, frankly, uh, we can be as sniffy as we like. It's I, I don't even think that he gets A for effort. I think he gets a D for effort and, and Z at GCSE grade level art for absolute <laughs> shocking failure. <laughs> we need to send you on to Grayson Perry's Art Club, Bendy. This is the kind of things that need saying there. But uh, I'll tell you, uh, what, what, an interesting thing that I noticed is how the celebs suit their art. I mean, Reese Witherspoon's taken up watercolours as well, hasn't she? And there's a picture of her on her Instagram feed of sitting in this perfect white outfit in a perfect, clean kind of pale beige kitchen with a perfect little box of watercolours and her perfect blonde hair and she's painting perfect little pictures of flowers. Could not be a closer association. And then you've got Anthony Hopkins who's also a big abstract painter of sorts and he's standing there in these loud blue and red shirts, these kind of clothes that seem to have been designed by Jackson Pollock and all the paintings he's producing are like that as well. It's very interesting. They say that people look like their dogs unquestionably people's art if you're a celebrity tends to look like you it's a very interesting phenomenon oh that i i feel you've got a tv series in there Waldemar. i think you should be pitching that to the bbc celebrities who look like their art they'd never have it on um look i'm being snooty i apologize to all the celebs who might possibly be listening i didn't mean to be as, as rude as i have been about your work I, I get the idea of artist therapy i do get it i understand it i'm sympathetic to it 
But there is this other world, which is the world that I tend to be interested in, which isn't about that. I mean, jo John Hoyland said something good about artists' therapy once. John Hoyland was this great abstract painter of the 70s and 80s, a British abstract painter. He says, you know, people say to me that art is a great therapy, he says. But um, when I paint art, um, it's so difficult, such a pain, such big decisions, makes me so, so neurotic that if I treated it as a therapy, it would drive me completely crazy. And I know what he means by that. You know, there's a sort of level of serious involvement, I guess, that, that makes making art an angsty moment, not a relaxing one, I suppose that's what it is. Um, but anyway, good luck to them all. And as long as I don't have to buy them or, or look at them too much, I'm happy that they're all painting away in their big Hollywood homes. I've got something else that I want to talk about, and that is retail therapy. One of the great things about all this art that's um, available on the internet, and you can get all these websites and things on these Sunday Times uh, pages devoted to this, to, to Waldy and Bendy's adventures in art. Uh, one of the great things that, that you can do is buy stuff online these days, right? And um, I'm a great fan of the auction sites. So I, I swap different sites. I go to invaluable.com, I go to the saleroom.com, mm. and I just look usually through the prints that are on sale because I like a print. I love mm. a print and you mm. can get such extraordinarily good things in the print sales. You can buy Duras, you can buy Rembrandts, and of course some of them are very expensive, but some of them are not. And it, it is certainly doable. And there's this event called the London Original Print Fair, which uh, happens once a year now, exactly now in London. Um, and of course uh, this year they've had to postpone it. So it's all gone online. And there is this big website, the London Original Print website, where you could go to the different booths, as it were, that are run by all the different art galleries um, and browse through their contents, have a look at what they've got. And they range terrifically. I mean, there are some, some dealers who specialize in Hogarth prints, 17th century stuff, and you can browse through that. And even within that field, some things are 20,000, but some things are a couple of hundred. Or you can go to contemporary art uh, and you can look at uh, all kinds of interesting artists whose work is on sale at the moment. Do you know those things, Grosvenor prints? I suppose you, that's not your family, is it? You didn't own Grosvenor prints, did you, by any chance, Bendy? Oh, no, sadly not. No, lots of people have taken my perfect name in vain. But you know what Grosvenor prints are? Yes, I do. Okay, so these Grosvenor prints, which were sort of liner cuts, weren't they, and woodblocks from the 1930s and 40s, mm. really good, really attractive. Um, they became popular a few years ago. You used to be able to buy them for, for 50, 60 mm. quid, you know, but now they're hundreds and sometimes thousands. There are, you can buy Grosvenor prints, for example, at the London Original Print Fair, and you can have a jolly good browse. And it's quite a good way of keeping up with what printmaking is about. Um, quite a good way to buy stuff and and above all it's quite a good way to do a bit of calming shop window gazing um and a bit of retail therapy if you must so i quite recommend that i mean it's a good thing to do with your time i think what about you bendy well um i'm missing i like you i do the auction sites quite regularly i'm missing the number of auctions there are um, i'm getting withdrawal symptoms um so i haven't bought anything i mean i don't buy much these days but i haven't bought anything for a while have, have you actually bought something lately through that that website not the london original print fair website but i have bought um stuff in auction sites yeah i mean i'm, I'm trying to build up a collection of dura this is my big ambition at the moment i think it was the greatest printmaker of all time well he was i don't know i think about it it's, <laughs> he just was that's it and 
the, the difficulty with prints, of course, is that it depends what edition it is and what state it's in and all that kind of stuff. So the more you find out about it, the harder it is to buy anything because you get more and more choosy, more and more picky. Um, but I do love looking at prints on, online. I recommend it to everybody listening to this podcast. If you want to get the joy of art, if you want to look at Rembrandt's and Dürer's and go to some of the auction sites or go to the London Original Print Fair site, it's all really exciting. But uh, yes, I mean, you, you must collect prints as well. You were an art dealer for a long time, weren't you, Bendy? You must have a big collection of prints. Um, do you know, I'm not really a, as much of a print fan as you. You're, you're doing a very good job to try and convert me. I find that that sort of, you know, various editions and ranges and, and, and distances from originality. I find that all a little bit bewildering. I'm slightly more into contemporary prints. In fact, there was one artist I've not come across who, thanks to your recommendation on that print fair website, I'm now a fan of. She's called Jenny Robinson. and She does these lovely lithographs, a sort of derelict industrial scenes. I was quite taken by some of those. But um, the, the website you mentioned was good, but there's, there's I mean, there's a great alarm in the art trade, I have to say, from talking to my friends about quite what the art market is going to do um, going forward. I mean, selling art on a screen is, is difficult, isn't it? Because you don't get the scale, you don't get that sense of oomph from standing in front of, a, of an actual object. Um, so all these d dealers are going to have to get really good at selling art through a screen. I'm not quite sure what the answer is. But of course, it's easier to do that with prints than it is with paintings, yeah, because yeah. prints by and large are yeah. of this sort of scale so whereas i agree with you 100 percent that trying to judge any kind of pictures or paintings or, or or sculpture or let alone installations and videos and all the other things that art can do um is impossible on uh, on a tv screen uh, prints have a fighting chance and that's really why i like them and why i recommend them but anyway real paintings are of course a different thing real paintings hit you in the solar plexus and knock you out um and that's why i think we need to move on we need to go back to our museum without walls where you and i get to choose anything we want to hang on our imaginary walls on the wall here we are on the wall, what are we going to choose this time? Bendy, you've always been a, a man of the classics, a, a, a figure who's interested in history, but you seem to have strayed a bit from that angle this week, as far as I can see. What is it that you're going to be hanging on your wall? Oh, it's a giant painting of folded fabric by a Scottish artist called Alison Watt. It was painted in 2000 and it belongs to the National Gallery of Scotland. And I see on their website that it's in storage at the moment. So. I'm sure they won't mind lending it to me for a bit. Um, I like this picture for, for two reasons, actually. For, on, a, on a purely visual level, I find it quite mesmerising and relaxing. It, it does take me to another place, and that's what we all need at the moment. Secondly, I, I like it because it's not just a depiction of folded fabric. It, it's not just a still life. Um, for about 10 years from the mid-1980s, she spent every day almost obsessively doing figure studies from, from life models. And then she she morphed into uh, painting figures with draperies and then through that ended up with just draperies, but actually they are figure studies within them. Uh, they're, they're almost portraits. Now, Maldi, you know me, I, I, I love a good portrait. My favorite artist, in fact, is Sir Anthony Van Dyke. And Van Dyke uh, reveled in painting fabrics and draperies. It's a very important part of the the portraitist's armory because not only did you often have to show off the, your sitter's uh, fabulous costume but you you had to be able to 
uh, create a, you know, the impression of a human form beneath a piece of, of silky fabric, which is actually quite an artistic challenge. So, so all of this is, is condensed, is distilled into Alison Watts' uh, paintings of fabric. It's almost abstract in a sense, but, but what I call proper abstract, because it's not just abstract for the sake of it, it's actually something which the foundations of which are, are many years of, 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 of real artistic intellect and, and superb technique. Uh, and that's why I, I love her paintings. Um, I, I must also confess to uh, many years ago, I did try and buy one of these uh, Alison Mott drapery paintings and I, and I underbid it and I've regretted it ever since. So being able to get a free one from the National Gallery of Scotland at the moment is, is uh, going to do me very nicely. Thank you very much. Now I did see these. I did actually see these. I was sent up to Scotland for some show or other, and I remember seeing them. What I what I most remember about them, the whole so there's a sequence, wasn't there? It wasn't you've got this one of this just this white drapery? That's all you see a piece of white drapery. But there were other ones in the show, weren't there? But they were all so big, they were gigantic, weren't they? weren't they like the size of a wall, literally the size of a wall? Yeah, yeah, I do like a big picture. <laughs> you do, don't you? And it was that disparity between the sort of intimate feeling of little bit of crumpled up material um, and this gigantic scale you know sort of Jackson Pollock scale that made them that made them interesting but um, yeah didn't, didn't Alison what start out um, as a portraitist she, she was as, as I seem to remember it she suddenly popped up having won the the that portrait award at the National Portrait Gallery um, that's certainly when I first heard of her I mean is, that is what she is primarily isn't it a portraitist um, yes I suppose so yes lots of self-portraits too which are also um rather lovely to look at cloth is interesting in art it's always I, do you know your old employer philip mold i remember moldy coming up to me once and we're having a big conversation about peter lely who i love and you love we all love peter lely um and i was trying to work out what makes a real lely and what makes a fake lely or not not a fake lely but a a lely that isn't by his hand but school of and he gave me this big tutorial about the way lely painted cloth and do you know what? He was absolutely right. The real Lelys have a sort of boldness to the way the cloth is done. There's a sort of exactitude. When you're painting sort of flashing silks and bright satins, reaching that kind of exactitude is very difficult. And when it was farmed out to the hands in the studio, you know, the people who are working there and mass producing the painted cloth, um, it wasn't nearly as good in the early examples as when Lely himself did it. And it is the sign of a master, isn't it? I mean, there are all those wonderful cloth pictures by Leonardo da Vinci. He set himself this task of doing a whole series of drawings of cloth. And they used to do this in Renaissance studios. They used to put the cloth and dip it in plaster of Paris and then sort of hang it from something. And the artists, the, the students had to copy it as, as clearly as possible because it's a, an enormously difficult task to capture the fold, the complication, the bursting through of a piece of fabric is really, really hard. It's a kind of test of how good your hand is. So um, this, this, this Alison Watt of yours is in, is in a very venerable and important tradition, isn't it? It is, and when you break it down, it's quite an artistic challenge because you've, you've only really got three things to play with, uh, dark tones, mid-tones, and highlights. And, and that's why, as you were saying, Lily was, if you see a Lily drapery painted uh, undoubtedly by himself, it is extraordinary to look at because it's just three things, isn't it? It's three colors usually. And, and when yeah. you look at it up close, you think, well, how does that convey a sense of crunchy satin? But it does from a few paces away. And that's what Alison Watt can do too.
This is what Piers Brosnan will never do. You see, this is the difference. <laughs> this is what counts. This is this is what makes some art some art, another art something else. You know. Anyway, <laughs> I, that I do believe fervently. But um, because you've gone for this gentle and very sort of beautiful and pale and intelligent picture um, by by Alison Watt, um, I've gone for the opposite as always. See, I've gone for something that reflects the way I'm feeling at the moment, right? Um, now, my wife turned to me the other day and she said, you know what, Valdemar, you're looking like a Philip Guston painting. <laughs> and I went to the mirror and had a look. I hadn't shaved that day. My hair was in a mess. Um, I put on far too many pounds through eating far too many biscuits. I looked bloodshot. I looked terrible you know this lockdown is meant to be doing us good but it wasn't doing me any good it's not and I true thought, god you damn it no, no, she, you know what she was absolutely right it's done wonders for you <laughs> uh, and you're even dressed at the moment in this beautiful white cricket top that rhymes with Alison Watt but I'm just sitting here bristling away with my fat stomach sticking out and I'm actually staring at my Philip Guston and it's given me great pleasure because what it shows and it's a kind of self-portrait by Guston what it shows is this slob in a bed where he's lying in a bed on his back balanced on his stomach is a is a plate of biscuits he's got a fag in his mouth there's a bare light bulb above his head hanging down and a big pile of shoes the bottoms of all these shoes are showing and it's painted with a, a very sort of quick cartoonish style lots of black marks and basically again in three colors i mean it's it's sort of red black and white that's it and this rather sort of harsh nocturnal sense that it has this sense of great slobbishness um is amplified by these curious and really effective little details so there is this bare light bulb hanging down there's a sort of black cord which i guess you think belongs to a blind or something that's been pulled pulled down in the way that you sometimes see them in bacon paintings and all these shoes which i happen to know are based on something you saw in auschwitz you know in auschwitz during the um when the museum was opened they started to collect all the piles and piles of shoes that had been picked up more the prisoners um, and it just showed them as a sort of lump of stuff and guston was a, an abstract expressionist he was a painter who um who worked knew jackson pollock knew mark rothko and for years he painted abstract expressionist pictures they're very beautiful they've got a sort of lovely dabby touch but then towards the end of the 1960s early 1970s he wrote later on explaining this mood he said the world was getting very dark you know vietnam had happened nixon was president in america things were horrible and he said he just felt wrong doing beautiful abstract paintings so he went into this other style of his this sort of slob art that, that i'm talking about now and it was a very dramatic moment in art because a lot of people accused him of betraying the purity of abstract expressionism going on to this new thing and it took people an awfully long time to get round to liking this second wave of philip guston's with its with its dark political meanings and its harshness um, but i've always found them absolutely fascinating and although on one level all i'm really talking about here is how i like the slob to slob aspect here how his slob speaks to my slob there's another level of me which which thinks that this is a kind of wonderful way of painting history paintings paintings that have the spirit of the times flowing through them but don't necessarily spell it out so that's why i know i just know you're going to love this picture bendor uh 
yes. No, I don't love it. I, f I find it sort of slightly unsettling, but maybe that's the point. But I'm just distraught that you think you would have been a Augusta muse. The listeners can't see what I can see. Well, you're looking tremendous. You've got a nice natty hat on. And um, I, I think I need to have a word with your wife. She's, she's being too unkind to you. Bender, you need some new glasses. But I can't, hang on, hang on. I'm not going to let you move on so quickly. Do you or do you not like this Philip Guston painting? Not especially. You see, you didn't like this. There are a few things I've shown you you didn't like. You didn't like the Picasso wartime isolation still life the other week because you said that was too harsh. Bendor, life is not just made up of prettiness and beautiful art and gentle things. Art also has to deal with harshness, with sparseness, with dark spirits, with the angst of isolation. And this is what I'm trying to get into your life. So I'm getting the feeling your life has been far, far, far too comfortable. You're going to be ever so pleased you met me. I am going to introduce you to all kinds of darknesses and snobbishness. I promise you that right now. Let's have another look at this Guston. There's a big Guston show, actually, that's happening in um, America at the moment, at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, which is a coming here to, to Tate Modern. Um, I'm not sure when. I think it's either the end of this year or the beginning of next year. Um, so I am going to find you. I'm going to track you down, Bendor. <laughs> We're going to find you in whatever old master shop you're in at the time, looking at beautiful flower paintings. <laughs> We're going to grab you by the hand and yank you to the Philip Guston. And we're going to try and experience this dark moment, this moment which captures the spirit of America at the end of the 1960s so very clearly. And hopefully you can change your mind about it. Well, there's two ways of looking at this, Weldy. Uh, the first is that I just have a better taste in art than you. Uh, and the, se the second is that particularly at this moment in our in our lives um i like to leave all the distressing stuff for the real world and find some solace and beauty in art and uh, i don't think you'll ever change that in me fair enough well you can look at piers brosnan i'll look at uh <laughs> philip guston anyway that's enough from us we must stop babbling it's bye bye from me and curio from me <laughs> Woldy and Bendy!